Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. I've noticed a bit of a trend as of late, and that is one of my episodes has been skyrocketing in total amount of listens, and it's one that I didn't really expect. Um, Jacob and Mom was on a number of weeks ago now to talk about some Catholic economic stuff, and this one has steadily climbed and climbed. Now, this kind of alarms me. I had a ton of feedback on this episode, more than anything else I've ever recorded. I had phone calls, um, multiple phone calls. I had a point-by-point list of notes on what went on in the interview sent to me by one listener. I got emails. People asked about it in person. Um, Yeah, the whole nine yards. So right after the interview, I considered doing a bit of a response or a debrief episode to address a few of the concerns that, that popped up. However, I really didn't want to do that because it's kind of a bad form to invite somebody on for a conversation and then in the next episode say, hey, here's all the, you know, disagreeable things they said or things that you shouldn't, I don't know, agree with, take seriously, whatever. I I didn't want to make it look like I was going behind the guy's back or something like that. Just poor form. So I figured, hey, The interview was at least entertaining. I hope people were informed to some extent. Uh, Let's just move on. We already had one on the books for Trent Horn coming on to speak about a similar topic. So, you know, what's the issue? We'll let this one just kind of fade into obscurity. Oh, but that did not happen. (laughs) Most popular episode now. Um, So I think we just need to address a few things here. Um, Okay, so... Jacob and Mom comes from a place called New Polity, which is based in Steubenville, and that group does have some good things to say, and occasionally it even has some pretty great ideas, but not all the time, and certainly not in the realm of economics. That's why I invited him to the show, because I really don't agree with their idea of economics at all. I think they take a very much distributist perspective, which I'll be doing some critiques of in this episode. So here's exactly how I pitched the episode when I invited them onto the show. I said, quote, come on my show and let's see what we can agree on in the world of Catholic economics. I bet we can brainstorm some creative solutions. We share a lot of goals. For instance, we both want an economy where a single earner can support a family. We want an economy where people's talents can be used in the service of others. We care about justice, which is each person receiving what they are due. And we want to honor the principles of subsidiarity and mutual solidarity. I am picturing a constructive conversation where we can work together to create theologically and economically sound ways to reach our shared ends. Well, if you've listened to the episode, that's not exactly what happened. Um... And here's the thing. I, I don't know Jacob, and I'm not trying to pass judgment on him at all. Um, he could be a wonderful person. But I do want to pass some judgments on some of the ideas that he promotes. These ideas were, I think, poorly formed at best and pretty destructive at worst. And I really don't want any of my listeners to think that I support these ideas just because I had them on the show. It would be one thing if I had Bernie Sanders on the show. It would be pretty clear that I disagree with him and that the things which he promotes are probably things that I don't endorse. But when we have somebody who's inside of the Catholic tradition and is speaking on economic subjects, kind of like I am, um, yeah, that could look like an endorsement. I really don't want to um, make people think I endorse a lot of these things. Instead, the goal of having him on the show was to kind of offer an olive branch to a growing group of Catholics who are discontent with the status quo economically and are seeking to reimagine it. And I'd actually like to come alongside those people and help to fill in some of the knowledge gaps that might be present and help them along in this quest because I think there is an authentically Catholic economic um, system that we could work towards, um, even if we come from different perspectives. I find in general, distributists are people who started in philosophy and theology and then are moving into an interest in economics. So they're using their theology to try to scaffold what the, um, the economy ought to look like. 
So I came at this whole thing from another direction. Before I was Catholic, I was heavily, heavily interested in economics. So I already had an economic scaffolding, and then I made some tweaks as I learned theology and philosophy. So putting our heads together could be very productive. Uh, I really don't think it worked, though, not, at least not in this conversation. I was quite frustrated with how the conversation went, and I really think Jacob was also. I could kind of sense that in him towards the end of the episode. I think that I could have done better being more adaptive to the conversation, and I am working to become a, a better host. Again, you don't know these people until they come on your show, and you're in the midst of who knows what kind of conversation. And it's difficult to strike that balance between pushing back too much and letting people make points that you really don't want to have stand. So I appreciate the feedback that you guys gave me as a host. And uh, yeah, I'm working towards getting better every time. Uh, still fairly new at the interview stuff. We have something like 40 episodes out and I think only five or six are interviews. So you guys are loving those. Those are the popular ones. But uh, I definitely uh, value your feedback on that as an interviewer. And I think I have some ideas about how I could have done that better. Um, anyways, if Jacob is listening to this, cool, awesome, glad you're a listener. Um, and if I misrepresent your position in this um, in this podcast, uh, seriously, let me know. Shoot me an email. Give me a call. Um, heck, I'll have you back on the show if you really want. Um, but this isn't really geared to deal with Jacob per se. I, I want to kind of deal with distributism in general. And if Jacob holds some of these points that I'm going to address, okay, great. That's probably why they might be in, in your mind, because um, they're brought up on, on the show. Um, and if he doesn't, okay, great. This episode is not chiefly about him, um, but he's kind of kicked off the, the subject of distributism in general. Um, all right. So uh, given the direction that the last interview went, uh, if he would like to return to the show, my suggested format would actually be a debate. Um, I'll defend free markets, and I won't be constrained by the fact that he was invited as a guest on my show and under a cooperative framework, as that's the way it was pitched. Instead, I'll do what I do best, and I will be happily ripping apart ill-formed or mistaken economic ideas and showing why free markets um, are the way to go, and distributism are not on the same level and ought not be treated as an equal theory to uh, free markets in any way. So without any further ado, let's address a few things which came up in conversation. Again, it's not to bash Jacob Imam. I don't know him, could be a great guy, but I don't want some of these ideas to be, um, to be forwarded. And at this point, yeah, I guess they need to be addressed. So is profit condemned by the church? It wasn't long in our conversation before this came up. Jacob said, I think, in, en route to another point, that, well, the church condemns profit. And I stopped him on that, and I said, all right, well, can you explain exactly what the church condemns? Now, he quoted from the Catechism, where it said that the church unequivocally uh, rejects unjust profits. Um, yeah. Of course, it rejects unjust profits, but, but saying that it objects to unjust profits means it objects to all profits would be like saying that the church objects to marriage because the church condemns unholy unions. No, unholy unions is meant to classify a subset of unions. It's not just calling all unions unholy. So unjust profits are a way to identify a subset of profits, you know, the unjust ones. And in the same way that the condemnation of unholy unions doesn't mean that marriage or other unions are wrong, the condemnation of unjust profits does not mean that profits are wrong. Um, I feel bad that I have to actually push this point as I kind of feel like that should be obvious and... Um, yeah, that basically that that really kicked off the uh, the dissent in that episode. I thought that that was a very um, uh, reckless thing to say, as when you're a public figure, uh, people think that you're you're speaking with some type of authority, um, and you can't you can't just say those things. So that is manifestly false. All right, um, I think that the idea that the church condemns prophets fundamentally not just misunderstands a catechism, 
but pretty much all of Christian thought, and certainly the basics of economics, he just seemed to to drop that point out. Um, so I don't know what he would actually defend that and on what grounds. I didn't really hear a coherent response during the episode. Maybe he has something up his sleeves. I'm not entirely convinced, but I'll kind of touch upon a few of the points that I made when I was in that conversation. So I asked him to define profit because I kind of thought something like this was going to be a wedge between our two positions. And I explained it as it's the difference between the, uh, the cost to create something and the value of that created thing. So if there's a company which takes in, say, 50 units of resources and produces 100 units of resources in return, well, then the difference between those two is 50. So they've created 50 units of value. That means that there's more resources, there's more value um, in the world because they have taken in a small amount of things and given out more things. That's an awesome thing. Um, Now, this gets split up. So when there's a difference between the input into a company and the output in value, well, this value gets split in two ways. It goes to producer and consumer surplus. Consumer surplus, I explained briefly in the conversation, um, it would be like um, the cost of milk is $3 a gallon. I'd be willing to pay 5 I mean, I think, sure, that's reasonable to me. I'd certainly do that before I buy a cow. So I get some of this consumer surplus. I would have paid more, but I didn't have to. So that was a benefit to me. And they would get a producer surplus. Maybe they um, could provide it at only $2, but the going rate's 3 so they got an extra dollar. Cool. Now, what about this producer surplus? So the part that's retained by the um, companies, which are doing all these productive activities. Well, um, there's a few places that this can go. I didn't get into this part in the episode. I just kind of left it at describing the three different companies, one that creates value, one that spins its wheels and does nothing because there's no profit, and the final one, which um, creates negative profit, i.e. loss, and is destroying resources. And we would want to be wise with our resources. That is certainly a Christian principle. Therefore, we should prefer prefer companies that do the first thing. They create more value than they take in. These are called um, productive companies. So what do they do with their producer surplus? Well, there's a few places they go. One is called retained earnings. So this is a reinvestment to make the business even more valuable in proportion to the value that it can create for others in the future. Guys, this is how companies are, are valued. We look at how much value they can create for society at large into the future. And then that is what determines their value in the present. Um, that's called the, um, uh, what is it? Uh, net future earnings, right? All right, the other place that they can uh, put this money is into dividends. So if either they keep it inside of the business to grow the business, or they pay it out in dividends, which means they're giving a return to the owners of the business who took the risk, who organized a productive venture, and who rightly deserve a return. If this went away, then no one would have the ability to take risks and create these companies, and they wouldn't even want to because there'd be nothing in it for them at all to put in all that work to create a company, to create value for others, and you can't even get anything back. So free markets make even bad people have to act for the benefit of others. Even if you're just motivated by by greed, um, well, that still works. You still have to serve others before others serve you. That's part of the free market. So with the returns of uh, these dividends, so money that gets paid out of the company, well, then this money can go in one of three directions. Either it gets reinvested into, well, the company again, so you can put the dividends back in, or into another company, at which point we're just leveraging the um, the power of labor by increasing the capital stock and making people's productive, making people more productive. Um, or you could take that money and you could give it away, which is a wonderful thing. That's something that Christians should support is charity. Um, we in the U.S. are, in fact, the most generous nation on earth. We give away a ton, um, especially our wealthiest class gives away an unbelievable amount of money. And finally, um, the third option is when you receive money out of this company that you own partially, if it wasn't kept by the company, if it was sent out to you, then you can consume it. Um, but here's the thing. If you 
properly earned that money. There is no coercion, nothing illegal, nothing immoral. Well, it's fine. You can consume that money. Yep. Um, you can you can buy things with it. You can do as you wish. Um, the church and the scriptures does not condemn um, becoming wealthy. I mean, Job was viewed as the most righteous person on earth, and he was incredibly wealthy. Um, plenty of good, wealthy people in history. Nothing wrong with that. And that can include buying expensive things. So if you see that other people are spending their wealth that they earned, um, and you don't like this, this makes you upset that they have things that you don't, well, I would say that's just called envy. And well, that's a sin. So don't do that. All right. I think we we dealt with that one reasonably. If you don't have profit, then you're destroying resources and you're just becoming poorer. We're called to be wise with our resources, um, so we shouldn't do that. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong about profit. I really gave this one too much airtime. Um, profit is good. <laughs> Email me with questions if you don't think so. All right. Um, there is another statement he made, which I hope is not reflective of the distributors in general. I really don't know. Um, in talking about some more global trade type things, um, even I think national trade, actually, he objected to this because we don't know them. So I suggested something to the effect of, um, it's true that you might be buying from your uncle in your um, town, but if we have trade, well, then maybe you're buying from somebody else's uncle and that person buys from your uncle in return. So every uncle gets purchased from um, and it just extends the bonds of peace that we have with our neighbors. And by the way, the church explicitly says that markets that are um, extending past the local level do in fact um, promote the, um, the common good and extend the bonds of peace. So I bet you I can even find that papal encyclical because it's somewhere in there. I should ask that old guest, Paul, who I've had on a couple times. He is, in fact, an encyclopedia. I bet you he knows it by heart. All right, so we should care about people that we don't know. Um, yeah. It, again, guys, I really hope this isn't a popular idea. That, that's not right. All people are made in the image of God. And we are all part of a common human family. Um, Jesus cared about all people, and so should you. So the fact that somebody is far away from you, um, or that you don't know them, well, yeah, subsidiarity says take care of yourself first, and then your immediate family, and then, you know, people that God put in your life. But to say that we shouldn't care about, or we shouldn't be generous to people who we don't know, or who are far away... Um, that's wrong. That's, that's absolutely wrong. That's a violation of what Christ would want. Um, and that's, that's not what Christ modeled at all. So if everybody bought local, as it seems to be suggested in distributism in general, well, there'd be a vast amount of very bad consequences. One is the size of a firm would fall. So a firm or a company, a productive group, one could say, um, has reasons for it not being uh, really small and reasons for it not becoming too large. And the balance of this is are called uh, economies of scale and diseconomies of scale. So there are times where becoming way bigger actually hurts you. So in a free market, those types of things are restrained from becoming too big and other competitors exist in the market also. And it can go the other way in the other direction. So if we only bought local, then we're foregoing all of the gains from economies of scale. Um, we also forego a ton of gains from specialization. There are two things which create wealth, specialization and trade. So if you only have an economy at a local level, well, then this small market limits the extent that you can be specialized. Like, that's... Everybody knows this this quote who studied economics that um, the extent of the market is what determines the um, the how specialized the people within the market can be. Well, that wasn't the quote. Anyways, there's a quote that pretty much sums that up. Um, so there goes your specialization, which means people can't use their unique talents to serve their neighbors in a way that they could have otherwise. Um, economies of scale, so you know, basic ability to create more value with less. Well, that's diminished. Um, 
yeah, uh, it, it, there's another quote. This one I, I might remember. It's by one of my favorite economists, Russ Roberts, who we definitely need on the show. And uh, email him and say, come on to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast and discuss economics with Jake. It would be my dream come true. That would be super cool. Email him. Mail at econtalk.org. Russ Roberts. He always says, we tried buying local. It was called the Middle Ages. I think that sums it up well. We don't want to go back to a time where we are Monty Python-style mud farmers. And that's exactly what happens when we reduce the size of the market, reduce our specializations, and cut away our abilities to trade with our neighbors, um, in which we would both benefit. Um, Yeah, we'll just be maybe not mud farmers, but uh, potato farmers. And if you don't like farming potatoes, well, I don't think you should like this hyper-localization of economics. I would also say that, um, well, we kind of have an idea about some of the consequences here. During the lockdowns, during the Corona apocalypse thing that was going on, you, you might be aware there was like a there was like a bug that was going around or something. Anyways, uh, a bunch of economies basically shut down, so our markets were closed to a lot of economic activity that would have happened. The result is, according to the World Bank, I haven't checked these numbers recently, but last time I checked, they said that 120 million people slipped into extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Was it you? No, if you're listening, you're probably in the US or by the stats of my listeners, you're in Canada or South Korea or Japan. You're in a very wealthy nation. You probably were not adversely affected from the lockdowns to any great degree. I'm sure you fed yourself just fine. You may have seen prices go up. You may have seen that there's a shortage of food, but you still got it. That wasn't true in other areas. Our strong economic growth is what carries along most of the third world's strong economic growth. It's because they can trade into our markets And they can specialize and they can expand their market into ours that they get to feed themselves. So this myopic idea that we should just buy local, crash our economy, destroy all the productivity, which is literally powering the rise out of poverty in the entire world is myopic and selfish. And we tried it not long ago and 120 people slipped into extreme poverty and struggled to feed themselves. This is foolish. Okay, I'm sorry, ranting a bit. Try to keep it under control here, but I think you, yeah. <sighs> the the compassion of the ignorant is cruelty, says the book of Sirach. And I think this is an excellent example. That there are these ideas that, oh, this would make the world a better place. But if you don't understand how things work, you're going to hurt people. And you need to have, I'm not saying I'm the world's most knowledgeable person, but I want to be careful here. Um, Chesterton would tell us that if there's a fence that you find in the forest, don't just assume that you can knock it down because you don't know what it's holding in or holding out. So we do have an economic order right now. And unless you are very knowledgeable, don't try knocking down these fences because you don't know what is holding back. And one of the things is poverty and starvation in people that you never met and yet should care of because they're made in the image of God. All right. Now, in the conversation, I addressed some global trade stuff, and I think I gave Haiti as an example. I worked through a number of steps, and he seemed to agree with each premise until he saw where it was headed and then freaked out and ran away from the conclusion. So he has some other ideas here, and let's get into these. Mandatory rent-to-own. So I asked him a little bit about this at the end of the podcast. And I said, all right, mandatory rent to own. In what way would it be mandatory? Are you saying that it would be mandated by law? And he said no, and then said something about, um, I guess, the, the, the government not being legitimate or something. That's a can of worms. Um, we can address those things later. Okay, so if it's not actually mandated, then I don't understand why he's calling it mandatory rent-to-own. So we're just going to operate on the assumption that he has some type of ability to have this go through. So what would happen if we had all rental contracts be rent-to-own contracts? Well, um, you guys remember the 2008 
United States uh, housing crisis. Um, even if you're not in the U.S., you probably remember it because we pretty much crashed the entire world economy. Um, it was bad, all right? Unemployment jumped, um, poverty increased, um, crime increased, all sorts of terrible things happened. It's a complicated subject why this happened. Um, there are many things at place, but one of the key parts was that there was a set of laws which lowered the standards for mortgage applicants so that poorer people who would not have otherwise qualified to get a mortgage could get a mortgage and therefore buy a home. So this created immense upward pressure on housing prices as the people who sold their homes um, to the renters became purchasers of more expensive homes with their newfound equity. So this ran up the housing ladder and ended up in a bubble where no one more came from the bottom and the whole thing came crashing down like a Ponzi scheme. So if all the renters could buy their home by edict of law or whatever reason, um, any guesses what would happen? Again, I think something like 40, 45, 50% of the housing stock in the United States anyway is uh, uh, rented, all right? So this is way, way bigger than the 2008 crisis, and it's not even close. So we would push all of these people into um, into the housing market to purchase. The demand would spike. The supply would be relatively static as people seek to build more housing in, in a furious panic. Um, and that would create a bubble and it would pop at the point where no more people are entering from the bottom. We have seen this before. So you were asking for a, another global financial crisis, a housing crisis, um, all the consequences that we saw earlier that were not good for the poor at all, all over again. Oh, and you think that's all? Oh, no, it is not. But let me ask you a question. Would that help anyone? Would that help the poor? No, of course not. Here's another consequence. Rents going forward have to include the value of an option. Now, an option is a contract to buy or sell a given asset at a given price at a given time. The landlords would, in, in this case, it would be the house, right? It's the option to buy a house, say, at the end of four years of renting. So the landlords would need to recoup the value of giving the renters this option when they charge rent in order to stay in business and keep up the supply of housing. And again, if they don't keep up the supply of housing, given static demand, poof, we have much higher prices. Who's that help? Nobody, and not the poor. Um, so therefore, if they, um, if they stay in here and have to cover this new cost, well, then the price of rent will rise. Doesn't help poor people, does it? Next, landlords will have an incentive to sell the house before they have to sell it to the um, person with the option. So they don't want to constantly be losing their supply of houses. They're just going to sell it at a regular market price to whoever can buy it instead of selling it at the option price. And who do you think would buy such a thing? Well, there's two options, either somebody who wishes to make it a home, at which point, boom, we're shrinking the supply of rentable housing, which causes prices to rise, or two, another landlord who seeks to rent it out. And guess what happens there? Oh, we're back in the same scenario. However, if the other landlord buys it, guess, guess what? Now the status quo is the same. The renter is paying an increased rent but just to a different landlord. And then those transaction costs of selling it back and forth between landlords to avoid having to sell it just to this person such that you can just get the market rate. Um, well, yeah, that transaction cost from buying and selling, which is enormous, by the way, will be borne by the final consumer of a product because, well, that's how economics works. Who's the final consumer of this product? Well, it's the renter who rents the home. So how does that help the poor? It doesn't. So what possible value does this serve? Because if a renter wants to buy a house, then, well, they can do so. And if they don't qualify for a mortgage, then, well, what does that tell you? And would it really help to force them into a mortgage anyway? Trust me, that doesn't help anyone. Plus, many people rent for a reason. What is the value of housing? Um, so what if the value of housing is decreasing? I mean, that's one reason why you would rent instead of buy. For instance, rates could be rising soon, which could put downward pressure on housing. Now, there's other things buoying it up. I'm not necessarily commenting on which way it'll go, but there are many times where housing prices fall. So do we really want to force renters to buy into a market that could be headed down? 
And what about all this market volatility? How could poorer people, which is assumedly the the um, the group of people that this policy is seeking to help, how would that help them? Forcing them to buy a volatile asset, um, I don't I don't see how that's terribly helpful. All right, so rentals do have many positive. Um, uh, positive outcomes or positive effects for um, for the people who choose to rent instead of buy. Namely, it lowers the transaction costs in moving. You don't have to sell your house and buy a house and deal with all that. It's very expensive to do these things. So what about students or transient workers or people who work seasonally? They would just bear the cost of the higher rent from this change. They would face a smaller supply of rentable housing. They would deal with the crashed economy that we talked about earlier, and they would be effectively prevented from using their talents to serve others in the place that they believe is best because they are locked into a rent-to-own contract. So that's not good. All right, so what's that? They aren't locked? Is that maybe the suggestion? We, we don't force these people to exercise their option? Um, well, that, that's, that's all well and good, but let's start to play this out. If, if it's not fair that they have to pay the same, it, it, how would it be fair for them to pay the same rent as somebody who does want to use that option, right? So either we say you have to use the option or we say it's optional. If we say it's optional, how is it fair for somebody who doesn't want to buy the home later to have to bear this higher costs of this mandatory rent-to-own program um, it, when they don't actually receive the benefit? So why should they pay for an option that they don't want? Well, we could get around this. We could just let landlords offer contracts without the stipulation that they must exercise the option. And guess what? They do. This is literally what we have now. What we have now is people negotiate with their landlord for a contract that works for them both. If they want to pay extra for an option which allows them to purchase the home, well, they can do that. But it's not at some arbitrarily set rate. It's at a rate that they can both agree on. Because if you both don't agree on a price, then one person is being bullied or coerced. And that's not right. That's that's against the virtue of justice. So you have to agree upon a price between the person who seeks to buy and the person who seeks to sell. That's already part of what's, what's in the rental market today. And clearly, most renters don't want a rent-to-own option because they're not willing to pay for it. So I think this, this policy is... Um, well, anyways, I won't add on any more pejoratives and whatnot than, um, than I need to. Um, mean things to say about this policy. Um, that should suffice to sum up my, my views on it. All right, so don't crash the global economy, the housing market. Don't jack up the cost of rents. Don't create crazy transaction costs and don't force people into contracts that they don't want. That's my suggestion. So another thing that came up was nepotism. Um... I gave the opportunity for him to kind of explain this and had an open mind. Maybe he's saying this is kind of more of a provocative title for a suggestion and is kind of going to backtrack it or nuance it. I get it. That's fine. Everybody needs some clicks on their articles. Um, but I really didn't expect him to actually support nepotism because um, this is, well, it's literally illegal. Um, it's immoral. It's unethical. Now, I would add that every political philosopher would say that society is built on justice. And nepotism is, by definition, it's unjustice because you're not giving to each his due. So therefore, this type of society, and again, the organization this fellow is coming from is New Polity, so New Society, um, is positing that they want a corrosive uh, factor at the basis of their society. I think that's wrong. I think that we should have justice at the beginning of our society. Um, yeah. So it's fine to show favoritism to family inside of a family context, but it's sinful to hurt other people's families because you want to give preferential treatment to your own. That's just selfish. Again, if you want to know how to act with relation to others, there's this uh, helpful hint that Jesus gives us. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, 
I wouldn't want somebody to prefer their, I don't know, drunk uncle to me um, for a job just because, well, they're their uncle. So I wouldn't do that to somebody else. Um, I wouldn't want somebody to, to not hire one of my family members, even though they're really qualified and can do a great job just because they want to give an advantage to somebody that they like better. Um, so I won't do that to others. So no, nepotism is wrong. It's good to love your family in the context of your family, but this type of, of family love should not be extended to society in general. Um, it's been pointed out by distributist's favorite authors, um, Chesterton. And I, well, I believe it's him. Mostly sure. He points out that if you extend family ethics outside of the family, it becomes tyranny. And I don't think we should support tyranny. Um, yeah, I gave Jacob a little bit of a space to explain what he meant here. I'm not entirely sure what he said or what he meant, but um, yes, certainly don't take away from listening to my show that I support nepotism. Um, yeah. All right. Um, another thing that he said kind of in passing that I didn't have time to deal with was um, what was that money is, coerci- is coercive. I absolutely disagree with this, and I did flag this as a disagreement, and then I had to move on. There seemed to be a lot of red herrings being thrown out, and um, yeah, many many listeners expressed desire to have me address this specifically and to really pin him down on this point. But again, I, I kind of want to remind you that um, I was trying to abide by the terms of my invitation, a cooperative attempt to find common ground in pursuing common ends. Um, yeah, so I tried to hold up that side as best as I could, so I don't think it was the proper context to try to pin somebody down on something like that. I, I don't think that was the point of it. Um, um, it, it should be pretty clear that most of my n- listeners will know that using money is not coercive. Um, n- nevertheless, let's talk about money a little bit. So money is a common payment that solves a variety of problems. One of which is called the multi-party trade problem. So if I have some bacon and you have a new set of mittens, um, and, uh, well, I I don't want the bacon too much. I already have plenty. And uh, where you're at doesn't get very cold. Well, we might have an opportunity to trade. So it would be really awesome if it turned out that I wanted your mittens and you wanted my bacon. Like, cool, we have a match. Value can be created. If we trade, we are both better off. That's awesome. Um, But what if you're Muslim and you don't eat bacon? Well, at this point, my my bacon is still valuable and your mittens are still valuable, but we need at least one other um, person in this trade in order to facilitate it. So let's say we have another friend who walks in who has a chicken. Well, at this point, maybe a three-way trade is possible. So I trade my bacon for his chicken, and then I trade my chicken for your mittens. All right, poof, we've done it. Um, But, you know, this is kind of unlikely. I mean, you have to find somebody who has a good that you can trade for, then then you can trade that to the original person. So there's a huge search cost. Um, Bartering time is, is, you know, not exactly creating value. It's, It's just kind of a uh, transaction cost we would like to avoid if we could. And then we have another problem that we come to, and that is um, fractional purchase issues. So it's possible for me to divide up my bacon and give you a certain amount of slices. Let's say we are bargaining and you say, well, actually take 20 slices. Well, that's okay. I have 30. Here are 20 of them. I can divide this up. But you can't really divide up the mittens. I mean, I suppose you could give me one mitten, Um, But that's really not going to help me. I kind of need a pair. And if I only wanted a quarter of mittenness, well, that's completely impossible. So unless there's a match in the quantity of value, um, well, then we we can't have a trade. So we have two issues here. How do we coordinate all of these multidimensional trades where we include many, many people in them um, so that everybody receives what they would like? 
And how do we divide up our payments so that everybody receives the amount that is just? Enter money. It serves both of these roles and it does it really well. So it becomes a commonly accepted liquid value. Hooray. So no one would say that bartering is wrong. Um, no one would say that dividing up slices of bacon is wrong. So fractional payments. Um, nor is it wrong to include multiple parties in a trade. So none of that is coercive, right? Therefore, when money does all of these roles and does them very well, maybe even better, um, then why would that be coercive? Um, simply put, it's not. Coercion is the opposite of freedom or something being voluntary. I've been promote, proposing free markets and free trade with others, free, freely formed rental agreements with others. Um, I've, I would say that the, the opposite is, is what I've been talking about all along, uh, forcing people into contracts, um, denying people the ability to um, choose who they trade with, even if they're not local. Um, that seems coercive. What I'm actually promoting is free. Um, yeah, I, I think that the idea that money is coercive, it, it's just completely false. That that's, does not follow from the definition of the word. If two people enter into a voluntary trade and money is involved, how on earth is that coercive? Coercive in, includes some type of threat of violence. Money is not violence. Any more than bartering is violence because money is just a means of making bartering way, way easier. And that's a good thing. So I think this statement is kind of like the earlier statement that profit is condemned by the church. I find it um, uh, it's reckless to say these things, and it's thoroughly incorrect. Correct. And if one actually believed them, well, there would be devastating consequences. So, yeah, don't, um, don't believe these things. All right. Um, so a listener brought up um, my example of the active and passive transports in the body. Um, I did a pretty poor job laying it out. At that point in the episode, I was kind of frustrated, frustrated, so I was bumbling over my speech and whatnot. Um, but they really liked the analogy, so I'll kind of lay it out briefly. Um, and the listener wanted to know why on earth or how on earth Jacob could disagree. Um, I actually don't remember if he disagreed with it or, or what he said. I don't know if he engaged with it, but in any case, um... I'd have to look back, find that part of the episode. But this listener, anyway, um, thought that it's it's a, a very good example. Um, basically, I described that inside of a family, because it's a very small scale, resources just diffuse from a place where there's a lot of it to a place that there's a little. So you have a kid with a lot of toys. Well, share with your brother or sister, you know, because they have less toys. So we allow the concentrated the concentration gradient to move resources and value and supplies from one person to the next. Now, this can even stretch outside of just a nuclear family to an extended family and friends. Hey, I have more shovels than I need. You need a shovel. Why don't you just go to the shed and bring the shovel to where you need? So we're just diffusing across a concentration gradient, kind of like what's going on inside of a cell, where it's basically just things moving around based on osmosis, diffusion, stuff like that. Now, that's all well and good at a small scale, but as you scale out, this becomes less and less possible. In the form of a body, cells can diffuse to their neighbors things like water and salts and other electrolytes, but not nearly as quickly, as efficiently um, as they can at the smaller scale. So eventually, what needs to happen is an active transport system in order to have a larger, more complex, and indeed healthier body. And that involves um, veins and arteries and things like that. And I equated um, the circulatory system to the market price system. So it is able to move resources and move value um, according to the needs of the entire body. And that's a good thing. This allows us to be bound together in a way that we couldn't be otherwise. Otherwise, we'd just be, I don't know, little one-celled organisms. But no, we're meant to be a whole body. In fact, theologically speaking, we're meant to be the body of Christ. So resources ought to flow all the way out to its farthest member. 
That looks a lot more like free trade and a lot less like distributism. Um, another thing that popped up is a disagreement about the price of a rose or something like that. I guess I, I think what Jacob was trying to say is that the sum of the value of the rose is not captured in the price of the rose. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but I think that that's a bit of a straw man position to think that people who are free market believe that price sums up everything that we have to say about the value of a thing. Um, there's, there's a reason why I started off talking about things like consumer surplus. So if it's more valuable than the $3, which sure I say it is, then that excess value is called consumer surplus. So we we, we kind of know what that is. I don't understand what the critique is. Um, so I tried to express how prices relate to more or less um, and that we kind of have to accept that there's a gradation of goodness um, and uh, that's baked into Aquinas's fourth way. That, so as Catholics, we ought to accept that. Um, one listener um, pointed out that can't Jacob at least accept that two roses is worth more than one rose? As soon as we have a more and less here, then we can, in fact, apply prices to things. And I I really should do a whole episode about the price system. Prices are magical. They transfer information about literally what everybody everywhere wants in regard to every market and what everybody everywhere can supply with regards to every any given product. Um, it collates all these things through markets and it directs goods to their highest valued uses. It's about as close to magic as we have, uh, certainly in economics. It's it's amazing. So prices are great. Um, I don't understand the attack on the idea of prices. Um, I don't understand this critique of his. Um, a lot of listeners were not um, entirely tracking what he was saying or how he could disagree with giving things prices or whatever he was doing. Um, yeah, so uh, the point about you know, why can't, can't he accept that at least two roses is worth more than one was from a listener named Greg. Um, he was one of the callers who um, who called in, and he had a ton of great points. <laughs> so um, thank you, Greg. <clears throat> Another shout-out is to Samuel Moore in the Yak Valley of Montana. Uh, he was the one who did a nearly point-by-point rebuttal of what Jacob was um, was saying and uh, sent me all those notes. So um, yeah, that was a uh, interesting, and I appreciate the awesome engagement with the show. Um, so yeah, I do listen to every every um, email or whatever you send me, I do read. All right, um, we'll hit a few more things here, guys. Let's take a, a brief break so that I can um, sip my coffee, and because my podcasting software, when it's just me and it's not during an interview, caps it at about one hour, and... Um, yeah, so we'll we'll see if we can even play some cool music in between. Welcome back after that brief little break, guys. All right, now we we have something that he didn't necessarily bring up, but he brought up in an interview I think with Matt Frad, and that was he was advocating for not having an IRA or a 401k. So don't have a retirement account. Now, this is one of those things that I, I really not trying to just bash Jacob. That's not the point that I just don't want people to have the wrong ideas. And I think this is a very dangerous idea. Um, just because I had him on my show does not mean I support him. Um, just because he's Catholic doesn't mean that he's speaking in line with um, what would be solid Catholic advice. Um, so in that interview, he starts by talking about responsible investing. Yeah, that's great. Good. Don't invest in companies which are intrinsically immoral. I agree. That's a good thing to avoid those. So you can do that. That's fine. Also, I would say that prudence-wise, you can't go so far with this that you never invest your money. For instance, it's true that you shouldn't invest in, say, um, I don't know, a, a company that's a chief supplier of Planned Parenthood and maybe gives them abortion supplies. Yeah, don't invest in that because that's material cooperation with evil. However, if you are a Catholic and you want to invest in Walmart, uh, you shouldn't be bothered by the fact that, say, they sell contraception. 
Um, now, that's not good. Don't invest in a contraception company. But that's too distant of a cooperation with evil to make it an evil or an immoral act. So I, you got to use some prudence here. You can't just rule everybody out because there is a smidge of evil. We live in a fallen world. That's just that's just the way it is. Um, anybody you invest in um, will do terrible things with it in some way, I'm sure. Um, so make good decisions, be prudent, um, and realize that there's more or less distance between your cooperation with evil based on what you invest in and uh, invest appropriately. Um as just an economic note, let's say everybody did have um, a moral objection to, say, Starbucks, and that many Catholics stopped investing in Starbucks, and say 20% of, of them stopped, um, just closed out their positions. Well, there is some extent that we've reduced the demand for their stock, that th there is truth there. However, there's also a, a counterbalancing effect that the value of that stock is based on their future stream of earnings. So we would just be giving an opportunity to other people to buy that stock at a discount because we have sold a bunch of stock. So we have increased the supply of stock. Therefore, we have reduced the price. So people will capitalize on that because it's below the market rate. So if you're really feeling scrupulous about investing, just realize that the market does balance out anyway. <laughs> I don't know if that will make you feel better. Maybe it will make you feel worse. But moving back to the uh, thrust of this argument, he he didn't end his critique just saying we need to invest responsibly. He pushed it further to don't invest. Um, guys, that's not good advice at all. Um, there's a few things that would happen. Okay. Let's say you are an economic actor in our economy. You make money. You work a job. Would it be better for your neighbors if you make a lot of money or little to no money? I would say it is better if you make a lot of money because when you make a lot of money, that's other people, which we call it the market, but the market is just made up of people. That is other people saying, hey, we really value what you're doing for us. That's what a high wage means. It means other people really value you doing that work. So making a lot of money is a sign that you are doing what other people would, would like you to do. You're fulfilling their, their, um, their wishes, that what they would like. Um, that's a good thing. So go out, everybody, and make a lot of money. Now, let's say you have. You've made a decent amount of money. Good job. Um, there's a few things that you can do with this money. You have three options. One, you can uh, invest this money. And as I mentioned before, investing it is turning it over for the common good. It is leveraging the labor of others so that there is more capital leveraging the productivity of workers. It's a good thing. It'll mean that our economy as a whole becomes more productive. We can do more with less. Um, you'll get a return. Um, wages overall tend to increase with a higher capital stock. Many good things happen. So investing is actually great, all right? Option two, you can, um, you can uh, give it away, right? That's always fine. Um, but again, charity doesn't have that ripple effect as investments do. It's kind of a one and done. Um, you can also save your money, right? That That's good. Um, and then finally, you can just consume it all, right? You can, <laughs> you can just spend it all. Now, Jacob would say we should knock off the invest option, all right? And I definitely disagree with that. But here's the thing. If you've ever studied macroeconomics, there's a large group of um, equations which it's helpful to memorize, and there's a super, super, super simple one that I can teach you right now. Are you ready? S equals I. <laughs> okay, that just means savings equal investments. So the idea that you've saved money in a bank and it's not being investment, au contraire, mon ami. These create loanable funds, which will go into, say, investment into a housing development or wherever else loans are being made. Um, so investments can come in the form of debt or equity. So it would be coming in the form of debt in this case. 
So it still goes to the same place, guys. Only you don't get to direct it. Your bank does. So I would say that savings collapses into investments. At which point we have two options left if we take Jacob's advice. We have give all your money away and spend it all. I don't think that it is the Christian option to, well, do either of those as you're nearing retirement, but particularly spend all your money. That is very wasteful. Why why would you do such a thing? (laughs) If you spend all your money and rely on your kids to support you, that is reckless. That that is foolish. Um, And Jacob says that you should rely on your kids to support you because that's the natural order of things. Well, here's the thing. Jacob says, don't have any money going into your retirement. Guess what scripture says? It says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Not just his children, his grandchildren. Scripture wants you to leave an inheritance to your children's children. How are you going to do that? If you pursue one of the two options that were left, giving it all away or spending it all. One is waste and one is foolishness. You shouldn't give away all your money and say, hey kids, I gave away all my money. Now you have to support me. No. <laughs> Would you put yourselves in their their shoes? That's not right. That's forcing them to provide for you when you could have provided for yourself. That's not right. So if you are somehow persuaded by Jacob's idea of not saving for your retirement, um, no, that's wrong. Your alternative is to give it away um, or to spend it all. Don't spend it all. Um, Maybe give it to people in need, but you still have to be prudent. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I could spend more time on this one, but do I have to? Come on, guys. (laughs) I'm sure I could summon a host of scriptures more than what I just showed, but I think the one that I showed at very least shows that you ought to save, you ought to invest. All right. Here's one that he didn't bring up. Um, I used Jacob's interview as a springboard. Again, not to just bash Jacob. I do think his ideas are incorrect, but I don't want to be just attacking him. Um, But I I want to use that interview as a springboard into a lot of ideas that people may have been exposed to if they, say, read other articles by other distributists or people with similar thinking. And I don't want you to believe those things because they are wrong and they are dangerous. Here's one of them. You commonly hear, and this is also a socialist talking point, that, well, why don't we just, quote unquote, arrange the economy to have worker co-ops instead of this capitalist system? All right. So what you're asking for is for workers to be paid for labor and be paid in the form of an ownership stake of a company. So now we have two options. Either this is taken out of the previous wages or it is added in addition to the regular market wages. If it's in addition to the wages and it's by force of law, then that is called theft from the owner of the company and it represents injustice as the workers did not earn for did not earn this. They worked for their wages and indeed a workman is worthy of his wages is not worthy of the property of others. That's where the whole thou shall not steal commandment comes in that is an approval of the right of private property. If it is voluntarily given, so it's not force of law, given ownership stake, well, listen, that can happen already, and we don't need a law about this. It's just that most laborers would just prefer the cash value. They would prefer a bonus than being given company ownership and the requisite responsibility, financial responsibility, and possible uh, you know, need to attend company meetings to deal with the direction of the company. Um. Yeah, that's already in effect. So if if you're saying we should force it, it's theft. If you're saying it's voluntary, that's already the status quo. But what if we take that other option? So it's not in addition to wages, but we take it out of wages. All right, well, then that reduces the amount of take-home pay that these people have. That's not right. Also, it forces them to bear the risk of loss. So wouldn't it be better for them, just go with me on this one, to be able to have any stock? and not just stock in the company that they happen to work for? Like, wouldn't you as a worker prefer that? Either, let's say you work for Lowe's, you must own Lowe's stock, or hey, maybe you think Home Depot's doing better. 
or Amazon or Walmart or GE or 3M. Well, wouldn't it be better if you could own any stock? Yeah, obviously. All right, next question. Would it be better if this worker had the ability to buy and sell that stock at any time? I mean, imagine if all of a sudden they have a baby and they need a couple thousand bucks. Um, sorry, you can't sell out. Not at this time. Your money is locked up. Well, that's not right. It'd be better for people if they could buy and sell that stock or really any stock at any time. Okay, so what's the difference between my two common sense proposals added to this this worker co-op system and the status quo? Because right now, anybody can take a proportion of their wages, buy any stock, hold it for any period of time, and sell it at a moment's notice. So what's the difference? Well, nothing. <laughs> so I think we've we've showed thus far that either we're stealing from people, we're forcing people into things that they'd rather not do, um, or we just collapse it down into the status quo. So let me ask you this. Why aren't there lots of worker cooperatives? Well, it's because those people who know their own preferences and their own finances don't think it's best. So why would we force this on people? If it was true that a worker co-op given the same amount of comp compensation value, was better than just paying people in wages that they can use to either own stock or not, or do whatever they please with. If it was really better for the workers to do that, then why aren't worker cooperatives out competing other groups in the market? Why aren't they drawing the best workers? Well, they're just not. Maybe in a few niche markets, this can work. Yeah, whatever. And again, in a free market system, you're open to do one of these if you want to. But what you can't do is you can't force people to buy a stake in your company whenever they work for you. That's wrong. So, so also, um, uh, it, it kind of seems to go into this whole local investment thing, right? That you shouldn't... Um, you, you shouldn't buy multinational stock. Maybe the critique for the distributists is that the worker co-ops and these other pieces of advice are actually that um, that you should only have an ownership stake and invest in your own local economy. Well, hang on. I, this is subject to all of the previous critiques about localism and whatnot. But um, I, I don't think this is entirely possible. I think that I think that in order to get any type of productive operation going, it requires cooperation of people who own capital. It requires a large market. It requires these these specialization opportunities for investors, for people who direct capital, and for laborers, which simply aren't possible if we only have this restrictive local investment or local labor. And God wants us to be co-creators with him. He wants us to bring people out of poverty, not just through charity, but by giving them the opportunity to work for a just wage. That is secured by a free market. That is not secured by these arbitrary ideas about localism or about preventing investment. Um, those things are just economically destructive. And when you destroy uh, economic value, it's not the rich who get hurt the most. It's the most vulnerable people who get who get hurt the most, as evidenced by what I talked about earlier with 120 million people who went into poverty. I think that my rant is just about over. Um, suffice to say, distributism is a very fuzzy set of ideas that seem to be thoroughly impractical. They're often cloaked in an intellectual kind of jargon, and they just fundamentally misunderstand not just economics, but many basics about our faith, and they seem to gloss over many, many passages in Scripture which do, in fact, promote investment and profit and, um, and trade and being able to work according to the talents that you were given by God. Now, for those people who are honestly seeking to come up with what a good Catholic economic system would be, well, that's awesome. Like, I'm right there with you. Um, and I would say that I could help. If that whole conversation had gone well, 
I would have been more than willing to go down to New Polity, spend a couple days, and give them everything I know about economics. And if they were open to it, I could have helped them and joined forces, and we could have pursued some of those common goals, um, like just wages, or even the homeownership. Like, I can come up with non-economically catastrophic ways to promote home ownership, which are in accord with Catholic principles, but, you know, aren't mandatory rent to own. Um, I don't mind working with people who disagree with me. I think I mentioned in another episode, I was brought on as a, um, as a economic campaign advisor for a democratic candidate. Uh, listen, I'm about as far as from being a Democrat as possible, but we worked together on coming up with policies and I was able to help shift their thinking substantially. Um, and I gave two, three hour crash courses in economics with all the supply and demand graphs a person could ever desire. And, and yeah, Come on, distributors. <laughs> I am more than willing to to work with you if you're willing to be um, cooperative here. Um, we do have some common goals, but we can't pursue um, things like home ownership or or just wages in a way that that's gonna that's gonna just destroy the entire economy. My favorite verse, and it's becoming more and more my favorite verse by the day is the ignorance, is the compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. That is so true. So, yes, learn some economics, guys. If if Jacob is listening, um, again, I, I don't mean this to be a Bash Jacob episode. I do disagree with those ideas that he holds. I said that up front. I was looking for a cooperative episode. And, um, hey, if he disagrees with what I'm saying still, Again, the offer is on the table. I'm more than willing to uh, set up a debate, and we can we can discuss some specific topics, and uh, bring our ideas to bear. And I hope people can uh, can learn from that. Or um, I believe uh, uh, Trent Horn has expressed interest in debating him also, and he would be he'd be awesome at that. We had Trent on in a previous episode. I think we have a lot of common ground. All right, shoo, lots of ranting. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you guys learned some stuff. If you have any questions about um, free markets, about socialism, distributism, anything like that, stuff you've heard, send them over to me. I, I try to make it understandable as, as much as possible. Um, so at really any level, if you know nothing about it, send me an email. If you are an expert, send me an email and I don't know, maybe we can have more experty conversations. Well, I hope I can. Um, yeah. And if you want to just send me general hate mail, um, that's fine too. Um, the email is thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And I will see you for the next episode, which is another one that will probably get me uh, a wee bit fired up because I think the next one on the docket is on Marxist philosophy. And um, that's actually a good one. So I hope you join me for that one. And I'll see you next time.